Welcome to Pod to the Rescue. Rescuing the dog is just the first step. We're here to help with everything that comes next. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Pod to the Rescue. I'm Libby. And I'm Emily. And this week, we are bringing you part two of Tales from the Trenches with Meredith Perry of the Corinth Alcorn Animal Shelter in Corinth, Mississippi. If you didn't listen to part one, definitely go back and listen to that. And um, yeah, this the rest of our conversation is here, and we really hope you enjoy it. If you have thoughts, feedback, or suggestions on other people we should talk to for our Tales in the Trenches series, please reach out on social media. We only intended this to be a one-part episode, but when we started having our deep conversation, we realized there was so much there, and we ended up speaking for an hour and 45 minutes. We didn't want to cut any of it because every single bit was amazing. So we really encourage you to listen until the end. And um, we'd love your feedback. Enjoy. So one thing that we often see is dogs come off transport and they don't fit in so seamlessly to our suburban lives here in Colorado. And (laughs) I think these poor dogs, what is going through their mind is like, what the heck just happened to me and where am I? And our lifestyle is so different. So what is, how are dogs living in your area of Mississippi. I mean, you're in a rural environment. They probably have more space around them. They probably have a little more freedom. They don't walk out their front door to heavy traffic going by all the time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I know exactly what you mean. Cause I've, I've, um, I'm from Memphis. I'm from a bigger city. And then I spent several years in Denver, which like I said, was kind of a, a surprise there. To, to not see animals just <laughs> running amok. Um, so animals here, depending on where you live. Um, so folks that live in actual cities, uh, if you if you live in a in a like a what I would call a bigger city like Tupelo, which is um, I kind of live real close to Tupelo. You know, a lot of these cities have leash laws, those type things. So within the cities themselves that have that going on you don't see as many um typically just walking around now out where i live i live in a really um rural area and um i live out in the county and so most of the counties around here do not have leash laws they really don't have animal laws period to be honest i mean they have a few but there's no leash law no no type of containment law and a lot of folks out here um, live on, some of them live on bigger pieces of land, no fencing. So the animals kind of have their, they, they can kind of just move freely. Um, and even folks that don't live on bigger pieces of land, let's just say they live on a smaller piece of land in a small, really rural community, uh, a lot of times still don't have a fence. And so animals kind of move freely and do what they want. And they live, you know, they spend a lot of their time on the front porch 
you know, they'll when they want to go make the rounds around the neighborhood, they go make the rounds and visit their friends. <laughs> so, so that's um, largely a lot of them live a, a life of kind of just free range. Mine, you know, I live on a, a pretty big piece of property um, and, and mine pretty much have free range of the property. Um, but they really do not venture off. And I've got mine, mine have GPS trackers. So like, I know where mine are at at all times. Like, <laughs> if someone yeah. has, if someone has left the premises unauthorized, <laughs> I'm going to go get them. <laughs> you know, like, we, we don't play that game. So, um, but mine rarely, they, they rarely leave. They might go to the neighbor's house over here because they've got a, a group of dogs that they like to commune with sometimes. But for the most part, they're going to be laying out in the yard and, or laying on my couch really <laughs> now that it's in, in the summertime when it's so horribly hot here, they could, they don't even want to go outside. They're just like, let me in. I want to lay on my couch. So, um, but a lot of dogs around here live outside a, lar a large, a large majority of dogs in rural areas live outside. Um, and some of them, some of them may have shelters. Some of them may not, um, you know, heartworms is a big issue here because of j just because of where we are and the mosquito issue. But a lot of the dogs in the rural areas aren't getting, you know, heartworm prevention every month and those kind of things. So, um, you know, they, I, I could, it, it's easy to understand why if you take a dog that has lived its entire life outside and had free reign, and then you go and you put it in this little crate on a, <laughs> <laughs> on a on a, a transport vehicle for 12 or 14 hours and then it gets off there and goes to an entirely new environment new set of people that it doesn't know you know I mean gosh it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that that's that's a major change you know and you can't the dog doesn't necessarily understand what's going on. You can't really, it's difficult to communicate with them, you know, cause mm -hmm. they don't speak, <laughs> they right. don't speak English. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's, and a lot of times, you know, I think like they say, you know, you, it takes a minimum, I think what it was like, it takes a minimum of two weeks for them, at least two weeks for them to de decompress from a travel event like that into a new environment. But I think it sometimes takes a lot longer for other dogs. It's just like people, you know, we all, we all acclimate in, in different, uh, time frames. You know, some of us, it takes longer. Some of us were just right back on it, you know, and dogs are the same way. And I can see why you would have some issues with some behavioral issues and whatnot with, with dogs that have come from living this country life to city life, you know, where they've got to live in a house all day, or they have a, a small backyard and it's a, you know, we take a, a hundred pound German shepherd and put it in a zero lot line backyard. Well, of course it's going to want to dig out of your fence because it's been, it's had a 20 mile radius. It's been roaming its whole life. So, you know, um, it's that's a hard thing to combat too on your end as a receiving rescue is is some of the behavioral issues you you come in contact with just from you know transport stress alone and then too given a lot of these dogs that come into the shelter a lot of them we have no history on them we don't know where they came from they literally just showed up at our door 
they may not be an owner surrender. It's great. You know, sometimes owner surrenders are great because you can actually get a history on the animal and you've got an owner who's hit hard times and just can't do it, but wants what's best for the animal and has, is asking you for help. And that's great when you, you've got a whole history on an animal. But I mean, I would say probably 90% of the animals that come in, you have no idea where they came from. So you're live starting from scratch and you don't know what their issues are mentally, physically, behavioral. So, you know, you, and that happens too. Like I think where um, I've heard stories, you know, like where a receiving rescue will get a, a dog in and it, it's like this nightmare dog and they're upset with the sending rescue. You know, did, did you all know about this? Blah, blah, blah. Well, sometimes a sending rescue doesn't have the dog long enough in their possession as well as expose the dog to enough different situations to know what are, what's the total encompassing issues. Like you can do behavioral tests and whatnot, but that only shows you a small portion of that dog's behavior and personality. It gives you like a real top level, like bird's eye view, right. Of the dog's personality. But until you can actually get the dog into a home somewhere and expose it to other people, you know, other dogs, cats, children, different environments, you know, to your point, if you live on a busy highway with lots and lots of loud noise, a lot of there, there are dogs that don't do well with loud noises and freak out. And you're not going to know, we wouldn't know that down here because the shelter is also sort of in a semi-rural kind of area. It's on the outskirts of the town and it's, it's, you know, not on a busy road and it's kind of back up off the, the road. So it's, you know, the dogs don't get to see a whole lot of that. And so it's, um, it's, it's, I think it's very stressful on the dog as well as the, the person receiving the dog. It, it can be difficult when you're moving it, when it, when you're changing the dog's environment so drastically from, you know, living, like I said, <laughs> country mouse, city mouse. <laughs> right, right. You know, yeah. I personally feel that way a lot. So I can empathize with the dogs. Yeah. Well, and I, I think it's important for, our, for us all to understand that there's this big piece of culture shock going on for the dogs. And I think it helps us be a little more compassionate when we're seeing behavior issues that pop up on our end, you know, keeping this in mind that this might be the first time this dog has ever walked on a leash before and to expect them to, to get it immediately is not really reasonable. No, or to expect them to be potty trained when they get there. Right. right. When they've been right. living outside their entire life, like yeah. they don't know. And what's yeah. the first thing that's going to happen when you bring them inside? Yep. They're going to poop in the floor. I mean, that's just, <laughs> you know, yeah. you just got to be ready for that. But I, I can see that's frustrating for some people. You know, some people want an animal that's, that's already super well-behaved, well-trained, you know, don't have to do anything. And a lot of these dogs require work because of where they're coming from and the lives they've lived, which is no fault of their own. And again, doesn't make them a bad animal, but they've not been, no, no, no human has really worked with them to show them how, what the routine is, what's expected of them and this, that, and the other, you know, so it's difficult, I think for them as well. Wow. Okay. That was so, in <laughs> that's so interesting too. I'm just kind of trying to wrap my head around that. You know, you're, you're going from a dog that has access to 4,000 acres of roaming every day 
and gets, you know, put on a truck. And next thing you know, it's in a apartment or a small home and then put in a crate so that the people can go to work. It's just a huge leap. And I think the more we can understand where they're coming from in a lot of cases, I think it, it does breed empathy and maybe setting our lifestyles up a little bit more to accommodate their needs when they get here on the yeah. receiving end. Yeah. We have to adjust our expectations, I think. Oh, I, absolutely. And, you know, the other piece that is, which I, I haven't even thought about is a lot of times they, they come from living this free reign life. And before they get on the truck, they may have spent a couple of weeks in our shelter, which, you know, the shelter environment is very, can be very bombarding. Like, you know, cause there's dogs everywhere. It's, it can be loud, lots of new smells, um, you know, people coming in and out. <clears throat> and so they have to, again, decompress and adjust to having to go from that. Okay. Now I'm having to live in a, in a kennel for a couple of weeks with people with dogs. I don't know. This is crazy. It's weird. They have to get adjusted to that. If they even get time to adjust to that before they're then put on a, a vehicle moved hours and hours away and then come to you guys. So there, the, these animals go through quite a few changes. They go through a lot before they get to, um, you know, their final destination. So I think you're right. I think adjusting expectations is, is something to, to think about for sure. And even when they arrive, like all the smells are different and they rely on sense of smell more than any other sense. So that is a huge adjustment. Our water, I'm sure tastes different. Everything's different. All the people are different. It's everything is so foreign. And I think that's something that I'm so glad that we can discuss and have people really think about when they're bringing a dog home. Um, do you have any success stories from receiving rescues? Have you followed any of your dogs to see like, you know, the, the after <laughs> the after shot? Oh yeah. So we, as many of them as we can, we try to kind of keep up with what's, with, with what's happening and, uh, our receiving rescues are really good about, um, sending us, you know, adoption pictures and the follow-up stories. A lot of the, um, several of the receiving rescues we work with are really great about keeping in touch with their adopters. They have a whole process for that and somebody dedicated to, you know, um, fostering, continuing to foster that relationship even post-adoption. So we'll still get a lot of pictures and videos and stories about what, you know, happened to Fifi and how she's doing and, um, so that's very reassuring, you know, to know that you're, you know, what, what happened? Like, what was the end? What was the ending? Was it a happy ending or, you know, what, what happened there? So we get to see a lot of happy endings, which honestly makes the whole thing worth it. Right. I mean, all, all the, all the other things that happen, seeing all those happy endings month after month after month is what keeps you going at the end of the day. And I think that it's important to remember those happy, happy endings when you're having a bad day. Um, and I do, I've kept up with quite a few of the dogs that I've personally rescued. Um, so, uh, we've had quite a few success stories with those. A lot of the dogs that I take in personally are usually dogs that have had some type of really traumatic injury and require multiple surgeries and those kind of things. Um, 
and I'm, I'm really lucky in that I've got a um, partnership with my veterinarian. And so I'm able to take on a lot of the severely injured or severely neglected that a shelter or rescue might not be able to take on just because of it's a financially a heavy burden. Sometimes you're talking about thousands of dollars worth of vet work on one dog. Um, and so I've been able to do some of those and those have been probably the most rewarding for me because I keep up with every single one of them and, um, you know, I know where they all are and, and what they're doing and a lot of them I keep up with, you know, through Facebook and they'll message me and just send me a photo of Lucky laid out on a couch, you know, just like living her best life when, you know, two years ago she, you know, uh, that, that particular dog, she... I think she had been hit by a car. We're not sure. And her jaw situation was so bad. Like we weren't really necessarily sure if we could save her. So, you know, my vet just came up with a great, like, here, let's just try and see if we can put it back together with this type deal. And she underwent multiple surgeries and it took several, several months to get her back to where she needed to be. We had to put pins and plates in her jaw and finally got her to where, you know, she's comfortable. She has a good quality of life. She can eat, she can drink. It may not look pretty, but you know, and, um, few months after that, once, once I finally got her healed, I put her on a plane and sent her up to Wisconsin and she got adopted by this wonderful family who keeps in touch and every year it never fails on her adoption anniversary. Uh, he will text me a picture of her and say, it's our third gotcha year or whatever for gotcha day. So that's, which is super cool, you know, that, that people on the other end have an, like, they make a connection with you down here on this end. And the fact that they want to keep you informed about the animal and want to keep, want to actually have a relationship with you. I mean, cause they very well could just be like, eh, I don't care where the dog came from. It's my dog, you know, whatever. But the fact that they actually care about us here on the other end is amazing. Oh, sweet. You know? Amazing it's, it, it makes you feel really good. It's like, okay, I, I am doing something right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, like, yeah. okay, yeah, I did it right. So, um, yeah, I think that's probably the best part of the whole, the whole, the whole deal is the happy endings and seeing where they go. And I think everybody can probably agree on that, that, you know, that's what, at the end of the day, that's what we're all doing it for is the happy ending. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. So listeners, if, if you have an adopted dog sleeping at your feet, as you're listening, take a picture and send it to your rescuers. They'll really appreciate it. <laughs> yes, they really will. <laughs> You'll probably put a tear in their eye. Cause there's days, there's days when I'm just like, Oh, you know, just to know where that they're just to know they're okay. Makes me feel okay. So, mm-hmm. and I know it was all worth it. Yeah. We have that same thing here with our dogs. It's like, you know, every time we get one of those happy updates, we're like, okay, we can keep going. I know it's hard, but we can keep going because we're saving them and creating families and it's worth it in the end. Absolutely. It is every time never fails. (laughs) This is a fabulous conversation. Yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for thinking of me. And I, um, we hadn't talked in a while, so I, I appreciate you. Um, thinking of me that made me feel good. I was like, Oh, she wants to talk to me. Okay. (laughs) Well, I I remember having coffee with you and, and learning about 
you know, where are these dogs coming from? Where is the situation down there? And just being like, this is so important to keep in mind. You know, your experience is so crucial for the whole big picture of understanding, I think for the rescue community and all dog lovers. Just sitting here thinking about this, I never thought about the fact that the folks on the other end don't really understand the situation and the story. You know, that was something that, that gave me a new perspective. Thank you for giving me a new perspective on what a, what the receiving folks are thinking and or may not know, you know, that, that helps me too, because I think, you know, the more everybody understands about each other's situations, we can prepare each other better for what's fixing to happen for that animal. You know, I think it, we can only, we only do, we only do better by the animal if everybody understands what's going on on both sides of the situation, you know, and again, at the end of the day, it's about the animal. Like, I I don't, I don't know how else to say it. And (laughs) it is about like building that bridge of understanding. If it was a child that was being sent from, you know, Malaysia to Boulder, there would be, you know, some effort to understand the the different culture, but we just, we, we skip that piece. That. Yeah, we skip I, that piece. I think we skip that piece, not intentionally. We just aren't thinking yeah. about it because it's down here, especially it's an all hands on tech type situation where it's just right. so constant and it's coming at you every day. Like as I sit here, I'm not kidding you. Mm-hmm. My phone kept blowing up. So let me just see what I, I, I will bet many that I've got multiple messages. Can you take this litter of puppies? Let's, let's just oh. see what they say. Three of them. I've got three. No. Just oh, since we've been sitting here. So I've got three messages right now from Facebook from people asking me, can you take puppies? Because right now the shelter's full. And our unfortunately our our shelter director and her husband both have COVID. So they're so they're out. And they were both fully vaccinated, but so they're they're fine. They're they're okay. But um it's just gosh, like on top of the animal issue, now the you know, the fearless leader is fallen ill but she'll be back I think next week but yeah it's just um to your point like if we if there was a child being adopted from another country coming over here like now that I think about it um my ex-husband's aunt adopted two little girls from China while we were together and you would not believe all the stuff she had to go through like she had to go over to China do all this work understand the culture go through all these classes about what happens when you bring, move these children and da, 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 da. And, and obviously we don't do that for the dogs, but, um, it's still an important piece to your point. Like, and it's just something we've skipped over probably a little more than we should have just for probably multiple reasons, but it's, that's great. Thank you for giving me a new perspective on that. I hadn't thought about that. And do you provide spay and neuter at the Corinth Alcorn shelter? We do. So, um, the we've got a uh, the vet that I work with uh, also does all the spay neuter for the shelter, and uh, I think once a week on Tuesdays um, he does all the work for the shelter. I mean, it initially it started out as the shelter bringing all the animals to him, and I think now um, he has the shelter has dedicated a small surgery area for him at the shelter to make life a little bit easier. And so he goes to the shelter on Tuesdays and, and spays and neuters. 
And that's one thing right now that um, our spay and neuter fund is really, really low, which is a good thing because that means people make means that people are taking advantage of it, but we've got to replenish it so that we, we don't have to ever turn anybody away. Cause we don't ever want to turn anybody away for spay and neuter. Mm-hmm. So, what is the cost? Um, what is your cost for one spay or neuter surgery? So, so the, the cost to the citizens here is $25. There's a little bit, they have to go through an application process. Um, and we have a really, our, our, our county board of supervisors has been super gracious and supportive of us. And they have earmarked funds specifically for this project. They started doing this several years ago. And so we're super grateful to them for, for helping us out with that. Um, so they earmark a certain amount of funds every year for this project. Um, and then of course the vet um, gives us a bit of a discount so that by the time the owner actually has to bring the animal in, all the owner has to pay is $25, which is incredibly cheap. Um, around here now of course around here if you were just going to go to a vet clinic to get a 40-ish pound dog spayed you're looking somewhere in between 100 and 150 just depending on what vet you're going to so 25 dollars is a heck of a deal for especially for for somebody who um you know is is struggling financially so um, it's been a great program and has grown tremendously in just the last couple of years. The demand for it has grown, which is a good thing. But we definitely need help with um, trying to continue continue that on. Because like I said, we don't ever want to turn anybody away who wants a spay and neuter. Like, we will help you. <laughs> I love <laughs> You know? That. Wow. It's so important. I can't let you go without asking about cats. Okay. Because oh, we, yeah. we started rescuing cats. I think we did like 35 cats during the pandemic. Um, and it's, you know, poor cats are just underrepresented in the whole rescue conversation. And they're so important. They're so amazing. And I'm sure you have a huge cat population down there. So what's it look like in the cat landscape? Oh my gosh, the cats out of control, <laughs> out of control. If the dog problem is chaotic. The cat problem is out of control. I think currently right now we have like 98 cats in the shelter. Oh, wow. Oh my and, and, um, <clears throat> you know, the thing, the thing with cats is we have so many here. Um, I have kind of taken the stance that if you've got a if you've got a healthy cat living outdoors and it wants to live outdoors, fix it and let it live outdoors. Uh, cats are super um, self-sufficient. And so um, trying to get folks to understand that to let's just leave our feral cats, feral cats, let's trap them, release them, right? Trap them, fix them, release them. Um, there, don't get me wrong. There are cats that want nothing to do with being outside. And those are definitely the ones that we should make space for in our shelters and attempt to find homes for. But, um, cats are just, honestly, they're hard to find homes for. There's not just an abundance of cat rescues. There's way more dog rescues. Um, you know, even some of the cat fight places we've tried to partner with, they just can't take a lot of them because there's just this constant, you know, influx of them cats are also prolific breeders oh yeah Yeah. (laughs) so um 
the cat, the cats are a big, are a challenge for us because there's just, we don't have a lot of partners that will take them. And so what we've started doing lately is um, the, the shelter <clears throat> kind of down where I'm living, that's a little bit closer to me than the current shelter. They're a little bit bigger uh, and have a, a few more resources. And they, we have actually started doing animal swaps with them. So where they will take cats or dogs from us that we might have a hard time placing with our receivers, but they might be able to place with their receivers and we'll take in an exchange, we'll take some from them that they may have been having a hard time place that we feel like we could place. So that's another piece to this, you know, another cog in the wheel is shelters and rescues working together right. and doing things like swaps or whatever the case to try to help everybody helping everybody like let's create some rescue synergy if you like corporate words <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's the other thing too is like you know you'll have a lot of um feral or maybe not even just feral just outdoor cat populations because they're friendly with people a lot of more but you'll have a lot of business owners and stuff that don't want them around because they're constantly in their parking lots they're you know this that and i've tried to work with business owners in particular to tell them, Hey, if you just, if, if you'll just let me come catch them, spay them and bring them back, you, you'll, the population will naturally die out. And Oh, by the way, if you let these cats commune and you just feed them and give them some water and let them commune around your business, you won't have as many rats, snakes, mice. They're beneficial to the, to you, the population, right? They're beneficial to your business. And so getting, trying to kind of change the mentality about that is important, I think, especially, you know, and it's not just business owners, you know, um, also people in, in neighborhoods and communities who are worried about their outdoor cat population. They're not, a, they're not a bad thing. And like I said, they don't necessarily want to come live in your house either. They, they, they're just looking for a, a meal, a little bit of water, maybe somebody to scratch them and they're good. <laughs> so I, tr I try to leave the ones that, you know, that we feel like fit into that category. That's what we try to do for them. And, you know, spay and neuter them. If they need medical attention, give them medical attention. You know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, if, if, a, if somebody's managing an outdoor population or a feral population and they want to try to do flea and tick, you know, we try to help get them the resources to do that. But I mean, really these outdoor cats play a big part in the ecosystem and they're, they're helpful in a lot of ways too, especially around barns. And, you know, we live in a huge uh, agricultural area, so they play a big part in keeping pestilence and rodents away mm -hmm. from these crops that are being stored. And so tr right. trying, trying to get business owners and farmers and everybody to be like, you know, change the story for the cats, right? Like mm -hmm. we know you think they're a pest, but really they're not. If you just get the population in check and mm -hmm. let it kind of die out naturally. Like if you, if you don't want to bring any more back after they're all gone, don't bring any back, right. but you can, you can let the population naturally, um, self-regulate, right. If you just get yeah. them fixed. Yeah. Um, so do you guys have spay neuter vans that go out into the community and mm. what are your thoughts on spay neuter vans? Oh, I wish we did. And I tried several years ago with another group to get that going. And it's tough here 
to find vets that want to do it. There's, there's a lot, there's some barriers for sure. And I wish, I wish we could do it. Um, I don't think it's out of the question. I think it's something we could do at some point in the future, but again, um, you know, just the resources required to run it and keep it going is a bit difficult. And then, you know, again, even if you send a van out into the community, if you don't have, if you don't have the community buy-in to what you're doing, they're not going to come anyway. So I think the first piece of the puzzle is getting, going back to that conversation about how getting everybody on board with it, buy-in, getting them, getting enough local clinics to participate and getting people to come to them first. And if you can get enough people to come to them, then you could start sending out, I think, satellites into your even more remote areas um, that are, you know, 40, 50 miles away from a clinic. Mm -hmm. You know, I think getting your local community within a, you know, 20, 30 mile radius of a clinic coming in first is step one. And then if you can get them to buy in, it'll spread you know, um, and sending out those satellites. But, um, I think it's a great idea, but you know, the, the true test is, can you get the community to come to their local clinics and do it first? Cause if they're not going to come there and do it, they're not going to come to your van either. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, you know, but it seems like, like I said, it our since our spay and neuter numbers are way up in the last year and our fund is dwindling pretty quickly that tells me that there is there are more people out there that want spay and neuter they want to do the right thing by their animal so that's a very positive hopeful sign to me that there's there's people out there that want to do it it's just a matter of how do we reach them all get them all I mean I have (laughs) driven out to deliverance and picked up old ladies animals that couldn't drive and I'm like you know, cause they'll call and go, Hey, you know, I really want to get my animal spay, but I don't, I can't drive or I can't get there cause I don't have transportation. And I'm like, no, no, I got you. <laughs> I'll come and pick up your animal, get it fixed and bring it back. You know, just send me with a check so I can, can make sure, you know, it, it gets paid. But, um, again, that's part of coming together as a community and doing things to help your neighbor. And that's super basic stuff, right? That's, you know, the animal issue aside, just, uh, helping your neighbor and treating people how they want to be treated and being kind and being loving is part of fixing this issue. Just like fixing all the world's issues. Really. Right, right? Yeah. It's, it's pretty it's, basic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, I love this conversation. And one thing um, that we do at Summit Dog Rescue is, you know, we take some of our funds and we help with spay and neuter in the communities where we get our animals from. We, um, have a partner in Bay City, Texas, and they have a spay neuter program. And we'll just say, Hey, you know, your next cat spay neuter, call us. We'll just pay the bill straight to the spay neuter clinic. So, you know, it's not a huge dent, but we do help as best we can. So we probably spay neuter about a hundred extra animals a year, just in addition to the ones that we take um, with our rescue partners. And I feel like the rescue community as a whole, we are a community. And so if we can, instead of just taking the animals, taking the animals, if we understand that we're taking them from underserved communities and we could give back, like in addition to, to placing the animal, even adding like an extra $25 to every adoption fee and letting that adopter know 
This $25 goes back to Corinth and spays and neuters another animal down there. Like, I think that's a, a conversation that would be really fabulous for our rescue sheltering community to have of like, who's the, you know, we're very privileged in our rescue. So like we can give back, so we should. I love that. And there's, cause there, we have some partners that do, some partners do, some partners don't. It just depends on everybody's financial abilities, but I absolutely love that. And that's, that's the kind of people we want to partner with because it, you know, we're on the same page, obviously about spay and neuter. And that's, that's the way to solve it is, is at the end of the day. And, um, that makes a huge difference when the rescue down here or the shelter down here knows that we can count on the receiving partner to help us solve the problem and not just take the animals and rehome them and benefit from the adoption fee that comes from that. Um, that just strengthens the relationship and will only help solve the problem faster. So, which by the way, so you said y'all, y'all spay and neuter like a hundred extra animals a year which is amazing because if you like, if you do the math on that real quick, like let's just say you spay a hundred females in a year. Let's just say each of those females would have two litters a year of six each. That's 1200 animals in one year that you're preventing. Like I always try to put the I always try to get people to put the numbers behind things. Like just think about it for a minute. Like if you spay, you spay 10 dogs this week and those 10 dogs were each going to have two litters this year of 10 each. Think about the number of dogs. Think about the numbers you're preventing. It's a number at the end of the game day. It really is a numbers game as far as spay and neuter is concerned. Um, but it's, it's just interesting to think about how quickly you can actually make a dent in the population. If you get enough of them fixed, <laughs> that's, right, the, that's right. the key to it is how do you get, enough of them in a, in, in particular areas fixed. Um, that's a tough one to solve, but it, it's certainly the numbers speak for themselves. If you just do a little math on that and go, wow, this hundred that we've, we've only fixed a hundred, which doesn't seem like a lot, but really you've prevented like 1200 more. So kudos to you guys. <laughs> Y'all are doing a fantastic job. I love Aww. it. Thank you. Well, and so are you, we're just so grateful for the work that you all are doing. And thank you so much for taking the time today. A friend of mine just told me this quote, and I just think it's so pertinent. So it's from Desmond Tutu. And he said, there comes a point where we need to stop just pulling people out of the river. We need to go upstream and find out why they're falling in. And I think that says it all about, you know, what we're trying to accomplish here. Oh, yes. That's a perfect quote. Isn't that a perfect quote? I mean, <laughs> that really sums the entire conversation up. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in. If you liked this episode, don't forget to rate and review. It helps other folks like you find the show. To find out more about our programming and adoptable rescue dogs, you can visit summitdogrescue.org. Thanks to Mike Pesci for the original music and to Alex Lee Ammons and For the Love Media for graphics, production, and editing. See you soon on Pod to the Rescue.